Hello and welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. I just flicked the mic on and my producer Jessica is getting my attention, which means I've already screwed something up, have I? No. What, what do you... Oh, she's handing me a letter. An actual letter in the mail? That's very exotic. We get emails all the time. We get notes on social media, but an actual letter in the mail. This is a rare thing. I'm going to read it. This is from Catherine from San Francisco, California. Catherine writes. By the way, she has beautiful handwriting. Really nice. She hand wrote this letter. Dear Alex, I have a one-year-old and suddenly he's decided he doesn't want to go to sleep. Every night is a disaster. He won't go down. We've tried everything. Our latest thing was to play music for him, but that only made it worse. Anyway, the other day, my husband had your podcast on, and my son fell immediately to sleep. It was amazing. So, just to make sure it wasn't a fluke, we played your podcast the next day, and guess what? He fell asleep immediately. I thought you'd like to know that you are now part of our nightly routine. We put your podcast on, our son falls to sleep instantly. Thank you so much for doing what you do. Well, Catherine, uh, we're happy to help, and uh, maybe we should change our motto. From now on, we're going to be Stereo Embers the Podcast, the show that's been putting kids to sleep for seven years. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers the Podcast. I won't talk too loud because all the kids are sleeping. Check this out. Pardon me for stating the obvious Just wanna get with you on the same page It's plain to see I'm a little bit different I'm not like you and you're not like me I don't walk the way you walk I don't talk the way you talk I don't do the things you do I'm not too much like you of my guest today on the program, Holly Palmer. Let me tell you a little bit about Holly Palmer. The California-born and Washington-raised Holly Palmer has had quite a career. Signed to Reprise in the mid-90s, Palmer's debut garnered well-deserved critical acclaim, and she toured with the likes of Paula Cole, Katie Lang, and Sean Colvin. David Bowie asked her to sing background vocals on his Hours album. Spoiler alert, she said yes. And then Bowie asked her to join his 1999 world tour as a singer-percussionist. And yeah, she said yes again. She later joined Gnarls Barkley on their world tour, recorded a duet with Michael Buble, sang background and played acoustic guitar on Adina Menzel's I Stand tour, and she formed the musical duo Bubbles and Cheesecake with Elie Willis, who wrote September and Boogie Wonderland with Earth, Wind & Fire. Now, this is just a partial list, and I know I've totally screwed up the chronology of her career, but if you're getting the idea that Holly Palmer is a musical force, well, then I've done my job. I mean, she's worked with Jellyfish's Roger Manning Jr., Dr. Dre, Don Was, and Dave Navarro. How's that for a list with range? She can do anything. 
Holly Palmer has put out five perfect solo albums, including her 1996 self-titled debut, 2007 Songs for Tuesday, and 2017's A Family Album. A graduate of the Berklee College of Music, Palmer continues to study the nuances of voice and music composition. She's a mom, a wife, an artist, and a student all at once, and she just keeps crushing it. She's truly an amazing person, and I can't wait for you to meet her. This is a cool chat. Here we go. Me and Holly Palmer, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. of Utah to do the summer vocology program there and it was such a brain stretcher it it's basically a, a semester of grad work in six weeks so you're in class kind of well the first so the, so it's broken up into chunks there's four courses the first course is on principles of voice production and it's okay. this book. Do I have it? I don't have it. I one of my voice teachers gave it to me or told me to buy it 20 years ago and said, you need to read this so you understand your instrument, which I just couldn't. It was just too dense. I tried. I see there are things, you know, high lit and written in, but I just couldn't get it. And now I've started studying classical music a few years ago. And so I really there's some things I want to understand about how it works. And I teach a bit now, too. So this was a, just a crash course in all things, the science of voice, the acoustics of voice, um, voice disorders, the cognitive science around singing and around learning music. It was, it was fantastic and academically super intense. That sounds so comprehensive and so concentrated. I imagine it was an overload on a lot of levels. I mean, what do you do with that much information? Can you, I mean, can you take it all in or just do what you can? I wish that I could have done that that first course. So so the first course was three weeks and then it would start to double up with the final three courses over the last three weeks. Okay. And the science of like literally we're studying physics and stress and strain on the vocal cords and you know all these uh, scientific principles that are the building blocks of everyday life. Uh, Dr. Tietze would call it, what did he call it? Um, kitchen physics. But, but these principles as applied to the voice, they take some time to absorb. And he would say, I don't want to see you taking notes. I want you just to stare at the PowerPoint and just listen and try to think with these concepts. And I think that was a really, um, I wish I had started doing that sooner because, you know, we're all in there. First of all, it's a room full of many of them are have PhDs are on their way to PhDs. Two thirds of them were probably SLPs, many of whom had a singing background, but some who didn't. And then some voice teachers, and then a couple people who, a few people who are still performers, but just want to know more about how it all works. So long answer to your question. Yes, I wish I had had more time to hang on to the concepts and think about them before building on them. 
And as it is, I go back now and I listen on my, I recorded the lectures and I listen on my walks to really try to understand things. But it has changed my scene quite a bit and sort of immediately. Oh, wow. So the effects were kind of instant. Yes, because, um, you know, there's, we're getting a little bit deep into it. Uh, I don't know how deep you want to go, but but one basic principle that we learned was there's something called um, resonant voice therapy, which is an approach to how to sense your voice as you're singing. Um, and so the idea is that you want to, there's two sort of benchmarks that will, according to this philosophy, get you on your way to healthy resonant singing, which is, are you feeling vibrations in the front of your face? And is, are, are you having an ease in phonation? Is it easy to phonate? And if you feel like you're not feeling anything buzzing in the front of your face, then you want to sort of look for that vibration as you're singing. And if you feel like you're working hard or pressing or pushing, you want to sort of switch gears to find a way to phonate that's not doing that. And if you have those two things going on, I, I found myself just feeling freer vocally, um, which was really nice to just have have this instant other perspective on what I was doing and have it make a difference, you know? I mean, that's really valuable information. And so for someone who's been singing her entire life, is there a party that kind of reverse engineers and goes, well, that would have been nice to have known, uh, you know, 30 years ago? Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I wish that I had, I wish that I knew these things sooner but at the same time, we come to these things when we need them also. You know, there is that piece of it which allows us to keep looking forward and not look back, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I started studying classically because I want, I just want to work more. Like I do, um, I do session work for commercials or film and TV. And if I had, at that time, my technique was based around the music that I wrote or my kind of, the type of, um, textured kind of blue-eyed soul kind of singing that I would do in the music that I wrote um, or was hired to do. But yet I was aware that when I would perform live, I used a much different instrument than I use in the studio. Mm. Live, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching to the back of the club or the back of the amphitheater. Like I'm, I'm aware of my body, the, the proprioception of singing in those environments and the sound being very different and I really didn't understand what that was about. I, cause as I said, I developed a technique that was just my little niche zone of making songs and singing them. So I wanted to work more. So I thought, you know what? Two years is gonna go by anyway. So why don't I, so I started studying classically and I, about six months in, I was like, I, I couldn't believe how it returned me to the sensations of what it felt like to sing when I was a kid just you're, you're in your skin and you're just going for it and you're not thinking about anything else other than how much you love this singer that you're singing with that you're on your favorite record or making sounds around the house and so when i was studying classically i thought oh i'm in my body with my instrument again and so then i had this thought like two years is going to go by anyway let me just go get a master's and just dive in and see what happens and that was uh that was fantastic i really enjoyed that a lot this makes me think that one of the keys to artistic growth is further education, because otherwise you just keep writing the songs that you know you can sing rather than 
writing songs that you can't sing or writing songs that would push you in a way that you didn't know you could be pushed. So it just makes me think that in order to, I don't know, progress as an artist, further education is one of the main components. Uh, yes, yes, for sure. And also, I think when you're in an industry, it, you know, and it's changed now so much, people make music in their most comfortable environments in their bedroom or in their living room, like, but when I was first, like getting signed and making records, there was um, just a different feeling about I don't know, you're you're making music uh, for for a context that's not really having to do with your life, if you follow. Okay, so when you feel a certain amount of responsibility or pressure to perform in a certain way, you know, to write songs that are like the songs you've already written or to make sure that they're really good songs or, you know, the kind of pressures that come with making money from your music. Right. You, um, you aren't as free to kind of follow your muse, I think. Uh, and I would say that that is what I experienced. You know, I, 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 I would say I really didn't want to make a mistake, you know, mm. and I wanted to, and I don't think I found environments that welcomed me to explore. And I'm sure that I'm responsible for that. You know, we, we create our own destiny, but I, um, we create our own reality rather, but I, I think it's important to try things and not, not care and not know how it's going to go. And I didn't feel that way back then. So this is me sort of reverse engineering and saying, why, why did I not do that? And it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. I just didn't feel free to do that for probably a number of reasons, you know? It's interesting to see people who really young, like Tim Buckley, right? Made like two traditional folk albums and then went into outer space, right? Oh, or, uh -huh. Right, or Sinead O'Connor or Kate Bush or, you know, people who may have looked conventional at first, not looked conventional, but this sounded conventional a little bit at first, and then just went completely. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Cocteau Twins lately, like mm. someone like... Liz Fraser, where I go, like, what, how do you discover you have a voice like that? That's just such a, are you a fan of the Cocteau Twins at all? Yeah, I haven't done a lot of listening, but whenever it's on, it's like, oh, yeah, this is good. This is so good. <laughs> what is happening? But That's the idea that sound. it's unbelievable. I don't, I don't yeah. know what she's doing, but it's pure magic. But the idea that, but then there's those people, they're just so unique. And then there's people who discover this along the way where it blows the whole thing open and you realize, oh, my palette is much wider than I thought. The possibilities are greater than I realized the, the formula was kind of the prison, I suppose. Yeah. Or your idea of yourself, you know, what you think you could or should do or can do or would ever do like, and then when you go into an environment where you're you're an you're an unapologetic beginner you're you're like i don't know anything about this let me just be vulnerable and try to understand these things there's a that's a such an opportunity to ah, to grow into other directions that you you wouldn't have otherwise if you were not in that environment and that's what happened to me in in graduate school like i'm you know singing in 
several other other languages and you know um writing research papers and all kinds of things that i didn't even i forgot how much i love to study and and through doing that uh i don't know i i i just got excited i got excited about, about being an artist in a way that i hadn't been for a while i guess with this new approach with this new knowledge how excited are you because i imagine that the idea of you know what's going to happen next for you artistically it must have you feeling like you know anything could happen and i could see that you know generating a lot of excitement for you as an artist yeah i suppose it i suppose it does um i've been thinking about writing a new album and i've been listening my husband listens to all kinds of different music and sometimes i'm listening and i'm like oh that would be an interesting approach what if i did it like that i'm just it, turning over different musical uh, environments in my mind like do, do i want to sing with that going on behind me mm. Mm. I, should i so i have a friend who who lives on the east coast and we've been texting each other ideas and i don't know when we'll be in the same space and we may write separate from one another but um i'm thinking about what it's going to be and i guess the really cool thing is I don't have a preconceived notion of what that will be. I don't know if I will bring any classical voice into it or if it will be all classical voice. I, I don't know what it will be, but will it be more that spoken word singy thing that I used to do uh, and then kind of just stop? Like there's so many, I don't feel shut off from ideas, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. And that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. And there's also a lot of new opera that uses different types of voices. And the thing that I love about opera and singing opera is how much character there is there. You're, you are playing mad, sad, lovesick, love crazy people. And what is more fun than that? What I love about this conversation is that it's a reminder, and this is really good for any young artist out there who's listening. This is a reminder that no matter how good you are, you never get to rest on your laurels. You never get to go, well, I'm so good now, or I'm in a place now where I never have to do the reps anymore. Oh, no, 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 no. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm studying. I have a musicianship teacher, and I'm learning to read, start read atonal music. Oh, my God, that looks so complicated. I just, and I actually love it. We work on rhythms, we work on tonal music, but the atonal stuff is my favorite. Who knew? I don't think I would have known that if I hadn't gone back to school and just, uh, uh, I dove into many different types of music and it was, it was so fun. And the more you know yourself as a person, the more personal your art can be, I think, the, the things that you create. And so the more, the more you know about how to produce certain sounds or understand what you're hearing or talk to other musicians, the more you know about all those things, the more you can really express yourself. And I think that's the, the point of it, isn't it? You know, it also makes me think that, you know, no matter how advanced you are in your life, that the learning is an ongoing process. The learning is something that just doesn't stop, especially if you're doing it right. And I think some people, you know, tend to forget that. But it's, it's absolutely imperative that we keep learning. I think so. And I think part of what you 
part of what you learn that you need to learn is to listen more to other people. I think there's pressure for the generations that, you know, after us to have the, have all the answers. And I think when you feel like you have to have all the answers, you don't get a chance to find them. Right. I mean, I had somebody say to me one time, we were getting ready to make one of my albums. And he said, he said, well, you know, like, uh, can't remember who the artist was that he said, if it was Eminem or Fred Durst or somebody who was like, he knows what color baseball hats his fans wear. You know, they wear the blue ones or they wear the red ones. You know, he knows what color, he knows his fans so well. What color do your fans wear? And I, and in my mind, I'm like, I'd had people ask me that question, like, who's gonna, who's your audience, you know? And for better or for worse, I've never been good at that at answering that question, you know, um, the blue hats, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I, I think some people are so great at that. And I really respect that, you know, who, you know, who's going to dig your shit and you are making it for them. And I think that's great, but I've always just been kind of a searcher and an explorer and just trying new things and, um, wasn't really able to define myself in those ways. Also, isn't, that just sort of a, a fool's errand to try to figure out who your audience will be. It, it almost seems like that's not your concern. Your concern is to just make your art and don't worry about that. But that that seems like that came from a very specific corporate paradigm. Is that fair? Um, what do you mean by corporate paradigm? Like a way of operating? Like a, ma- a major label person may have asked you that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, but it was a producer who'd work for a lot of major labels. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, I think what it does is if, if the artist knows exactly who their audience is, then the record label does not need to figure it out. Just in the same way that you need to have, you know, X number of social media followers so that they know who's going to, it's exactly the same question, you know, 20 years later, it's like, we know who's going to buy your record because they're following you on Instagram and and TikTok, and they don't call it records. <laughs> you know what I'm right. saying? <laughs> yeah. 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 But I do respect. I do respect people that just understand how it's going to go. I I think I have more of a um, restless uh, searching aspect to me with what I make. When you were dealing with major labels, did you feel there must have been tremendous delight in in being there, right? The being and sort of called up to the major leagues, mm-hmm. but then it, it also seems like it would also come with some maybe some spiritual or artistic discomfort where you go, maybe I'm not, maybe this isn't my thing, and then that must be also very decentering. Um, how was that experience for you? Um, I would say it wasn't awesome. <laughs> You know, it was, it was thrilling, you know, it was thrilling in that, yes, I get to make a record, I'm gonna go on tour, there were so many things that were so, so great about it. Uh, Ultimately, I think the net effect for me, from where I sit now, was that I did a lot, I spent a lot less time singing and using my voice as a singing artist than I ever did before I was signed because I was thinking about things like, well, well, for someone 
in in that position at that time and now again i think it's totally different so if anybody's listening to this don't you know take it with a grain of salt every time i want to go do a show it costs money for people if the if if you know we i was wanted to get my label to have me do like a residency and like and we would always talk about this at the beginning of making record we'll go to san francisco and do three nights we'll go to chicago and do three nights we'll go to new york you know and that costs a lot of money and if you're some if you're a new artist and you're trying to break through you're not making any money so there's some very nuts and bolts uh mechanics to that why is this not viable well because it costs a lot of money so but yet i for me live performing live that is the frame in which i want to paint um but there was always such a kind of a rigmarole around doing that and i would when i lived in new york and when i lived in l.a i always put gigs together and be performing it was i it was a really important thing for me but um i guess honestly i think it was a little confusing for me as far as what i should be doing and when and with whom and I know that probably sounds a little strange, but I think that it it was not conducive to the kind of growth that I think an artist needs. When that phase of your life appeared to be like, okay, I'm moving on from this, when to go independent, were there moments where you felt freedom, but also a little bit lost and trying to figure out like, who am I in this industry? Was that a weird time? <laughs> um. I mean, I always felt like I, I always felt a burning drive to, to write songs and perform them and, and do my thing. Um, I never really felt lost. I just felt like I hadn't done, I hadn't. I hadn't done the thing that I would go to the wall for, you know, I always felt like my best work was in front of me and hadn't. And so everything was sort of about like the next gig or the next song or trying to get my songs on TV shows and stuff like that. Um, and I remember a friend of mine who's a writer um, in England. I saw him, this was like, this was before my son was born. I was living in Hollywood and, he said, God, he said, you've had such bad luck or something like that. And I was like, what? I like, I didn't see it that way. I just didn't. I was like, what do you No, I haven't. Like, I, I don't know. It could have been denial or, or how I felt at the time was like, this is what you do. You make shit, you, you know, you, you put it out there for people. You try to get other people to help you get it out there. And if it doesn't work, you go and make something else. That was kind of always my MO. I'm just get I'm this, this is uh, not exciting for me to work on anymore, then I'm gonna make something else. Um, and then, you know, it's funny, because I did some pretty fun, a uh, background singing jobs along the way. And there was one call that I got. Um, to go sing with Leonard Cohen. And I went and I had been dating my husband. How long have we been together? I guess we've been together for a couple of years at that point. And he was always like, you know, when are you gonna have my baby? Let's have a baby, you know? And I was like, I I need to like 
do more music, more and more and more music, music. And I went to sing with Leonard and it was, we went and had lunch um, at Le Pan Quotidien in Beverly Hills on Robertson. And he was, he was so sweet. It was just me and him. And he had, I guess I had sent him the video for That's Why They Call It Rome off of um, Song for Tuesday. And he said, you've set the bar very high, you know, because they were going to meet a few people. And I was like, I was like, well, thank you. <laughs> and then I went and sang with him um, at SIR, I think. And it was it was amazing to just be in the same room with that musical force and that voice. And to sing with him was incredible as well. And then we were going to do it again, uh, maybe the next week. And um, and I just started thinking about it and I thought, you know, I think I want to, I think it's actually time for me to have a, have a baby. And I, I decided to bow out of consideration to sing with Leonard because it just felt time for me to, to, to do that, to turn my creative juices towards my family. Um, and then I, and then that takes actually a minute, you know, it's like you spend your whole life trying to not get pregnant. And then when you are trying to get pregnant, it doesn't happen in five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so yeah, it took a few months and then I, and I got a part in a movie and on the first day of shooting, I found out that I actually was pregnant and, and then I got another road gig, um, was singing with Adina Menzel and, uh, fainted in a cracker barrel. <laughs> it was a kind of a funny uh, little adventure. But then my son was born and my son was born um, with significant medical stuff. And so then my life just took a left turn and it's like, Maceo's here, how do we take care of him? Because he, he required a lot. So I never really, stopped being a solo artist i just started being a mom but it seems like by the way fainting in a cracker bell is a great name for a for a um, autobiography <laughs> yeah. if, if you were to write it um but you're you do seem like your discipline has always been intact you seem like you've always been a very disciplined artist is that a fair appraisal of of your work ethic mm. I've heard people say that, but I actually think it's more a matter, matter of um, excitement and energy. I love to sing. <laughs> I just, I just love the hell out of it. And I always have, and I always will. And so I think I'm just always been excited to do shit. Be creative, be expressive. Yeah. Get up and sing the song get up and sing this song and that that's why it's so interesting to find myself in a new genre i still do the other stuff too and love it uh but um there's so much there's so much to express there's so much to make there's there's like you know life is short and so i think it's really important to if there's something that you love to do don't fuck around just get up in tight with that thing and do it I guess I've just always felt that way. I read that there is, and thinking back to graduate school, this makes sense. I read that there is a, people who talk about the creative work they're gonna do, 
get the same dopamine hit as if they were doing it. So then they mm. end up not doing it. Mm. In graduate school, for I went for creative writing and, and poetry, and a lot of people talked about the books they were going to write, and they never wrote them. Because, yeah. they just, because they were talking about them, it was almost as if the work had been completed. Um, yeah. So you're right. Like, just do the thing. Don't talk about it. Just do the stuff. Make the yeah. stuff. Be creative. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's what's been so interesting about studying voice science is that, you know, nobody teaches babies to to scream at the top of their lungs, yet they do that when they need something and their bodies repair them very, very quickly. You know, the your vocal folds are on a woman the size of a dime, on a man about the size of a nickel, tiny, tiny little muscle, muscles, ligaments, and a cover on it. It's a very complex system. And... um it knows what to do. It knows how to phonate. It knows how to make sounds that can, well, opera singers need to be trained, but there is a way to configure, they call it the vocal tract, which is this basically everything above your vocal cords to the outside of your lips, right? There's a way to configure that to bring in a certain frequency spectrum that can carry across an orchestra without amplification. Mm. The body is amazing. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're here ready. Well, for singers, like our voices, if we, there's a saying, if you're good to your voice, your voice will be good to you. And that really, I really get down with that, 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 that all just really excites me. So, and I have a lot of stress in my life because I have a son who was, you know, born with a brain injury. He requires constant care. He's fucking awesome. One of the most wonderful souls I never could have imagined until I met him. But his care is quite arduous. And so one of the one of the crazy bonuses was that in classical singing, it became almost like a meditation where your body needs to be free, mostly free, but strong in a couple areas in order to make these sounds. And so when your body is under a chronic stress situation, which that's how it is in families like ours, when, you know, there's a level of chronic stress because you don't really know what can go wrong. Um, I don't mean to be dramatic, but it's just a heightened level of awareness of the well-being of your child. And you might get a call at any minute, you need to drop everything and run. Um, so, so what I've learned about, what I began to learn about singing it required me to let go physically in a way that i wasn't letting go physically because of the level of need as a parent right and so my my renewed study of singing that continues now uh i am required like i i'm able to do it in as much as i can let go and all of us human beings have reasons why it's hard to let go. Um, and so I just find that kind of magical that there's a, there's a piece of music and a piece of creativity and a piece of making art and singing itself that wants me to be free. Was the letting go difficult to implement? Yeah. Yeah. Because... I'm always, like I said to my husband, oh, wow, we haven't, didn't get a call from school today. Like my son just started a public high school 
that doesn't have any kids like him there. But um, it's a very small school. It's a communication magnet school. His whole deal is communication. Like he communicates with a um, a head mouse, which is a little silver dot on his head. It moves the mouse on a little computer on his wheelchair. So he's on an alternate curriculum, whereas everything in his school day is geared toward him learning to communicate on his device. So his whole deal is communication because he's nonverbal. Um, I don't know if the people listening to this podcast know very much about me, but basically my son was born with a brain injury. Nobody knows why. It's just nature fucks up sometimes. And that's what happens. So he's impacted motorically. He has cerebral palsy. So he's doesn't, um, his body doesn't do what he wants it to do. Um, so he's a wheelchair user. He eats through a G tube. He has a trach now. It makes it easier for him to breathe. And, um, and so if you're hanging out with him, you might need to suction his airway. You know, you might need to, um, take him to the toilet. Like there's just all these things. And my husband and I are a really solid team. Um, and there's just a lot to look after when you, when you love somebody and are looking after somebody like that, there's a lot that you might need to, to do. There's a lot of lifting involved. Now we have a lift, but for years I was lifting 20 pounds, 25, 30, 40, 60. Now he's a hundred pounds. Mm. So I, so there's just a lot to, um, there's a lot to do physically and, but in order to make a beautiful resonant sound or even just an expressive soulful sound, you know, you, your body, you have to be able to let go in order to do that. And so that's been, that's been just maybe the most important thing that I've learned in these last few years of, of this new renewed study of music and voice. How do you take all the anger and pain off of someone else? How do you smile when you're nothing but tired and sorry for yourself? And everything seems so hard With grace, with greens On backs and hands and knees In war and peace We love We fall and we
It's really interesting to think about what you said, where a baby can scream and do damage that then gets repaired to its voice. But what about adults who are singers in bands and blow the voice out? Can they vandalize that voice beyond repair? Can the damage be irreparable? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, if you, um, you know, there's so many, the voice is a part of our body. So the amount of sleep, alcohol, certain medications, many heavily prescribed medications can hurt the voice. Like Advil is not good for your voice. Mm. You know, NSAIDs, those anti-inflammatory medications are not good for the voice. They sort of predispose to injury. Um, uh, reflux, which is, you know, huge. Um, you know, if you eat a big meal and then you go to bed, you're basically inviting acid to bathe your cords and that acid inflames things. And so if vocal hygiene is super duper important, especially if you are someone who is a heavy voice user, you have to give your body time to, re to repair itself. Um, and, uh, and as a singer, you have to know what your limits are and you have to be, you have to, you have to be connected to your voice so that you can know if something feels like it's going down the wrong road and to shut it down. Like Celine Dion, I've heard she doesn't speak after shows, not because she's not interested, but because she has to look after her voice. Cause it's the talking on top of, uh, chords that have experienced to some degree of, let's just say wear and tear from a athletic performance, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Alcohol is really, really hard. You know, it's funny though, there, these things can be debated. So disclaimer, people have different ideas about it, but in my experience, alcohol and coffee are drying. Um, you need enough sleep, menthol, cough drops that have anything, peppermint, get your reflux going. Like there's so many things. It is a kind of a pain in the ass to be a singer if you're, if you're trying to protect it, uh, your sound. Some people like a really textured sound. And then again, and then a few years later, maybe there's a surgery that is involved. Like we know some high profile singers that have had to have major surgeries and that's always a risk, you know. With that knowledge, I imagine you're somebody who takes very good care of your instrument. I am, but I got in trouble last week because I had to do so much talking to 
the new administrators at my son's school. It was crazy. Like I had, I had to record a couple sessions at home and I, I, I got to my voice lesson and I said, yeah, my cords are a little bit thick. And he said, okay. So we did these thinning exercises, which was really helpful. We worked on this thing. I was going to record a couple days later. I went to a club and sang with my friends at the write-off room in LA and I sang a bunch of songs and I was like, oh, okay, things are thick. I have to really not push. Cause when things, when your chords get a little thick and you're pushing to make them come together, that's when you can really get them even more um, swollen or inflamed. So yeah, so I woke up in the morning and my chords were totally swollen. I just shut down the talking. I started steaming. I had to be good to record this thing the next day. And then I had another one that was due the next day. And so, yeah, and it, but it was all because I had had, I had had several long conversations with admin where I was heat, I got hot. Like I was trying to make people understand some things. And that's, that again, that's on me. Pitch your voice up here, have a nice conversation, give people the benefit of the doubt, like don't push. And I was, and I pushed and I had a couple days of like, okay, I can't do what I normally do. And you could you could feel it you could tell yeah yeah but the cool thing is is that I'm, i've learned you know you do learn if you're continuing down this road of being a singer as you get older as you have more experiences to troubleshoot and problem solve and so now i was like oh i actually do know what to do to gently a few times a day do some certain vocalises that will thin my chords good night sleeps, do the same thing in the morning and I can sing the thing in the end of the day. And I didn't know if it was going to work, but it did work and I did it and it was fine. But there's a really high level of responsibility, I feel like, for being a singer. A lot of people yeah. maybe totally disagree with me. They haven't had any issues and that's great. I don't want anybody to have any vocal issues. And maybe they're just naturally, everything's flows when it should. But for a lot of singers, we got to protect we got to protect ourselves because the voice is in the body and the body goes through things we all know that so i think you were talking about about how certain things you can do with your face to project over an orchestra it seems to me that freddie mercury understood that watching live. You, not your face well you can do some shaping with your lips but okay. the the space inside inside your mouth roof of your mouth your pharynx, which is your throat, even in the, uh, Dr. Tietze would call it the laryngeal canal, these, the more open these spaces are, the more harmonics there are, and certain uh, frequencies are reinforced by, uh, let's say, a vertical vocal position. So if you see somebody singing like that, they're not going to sound as good as if you, like that. Do you hear my voice just changed? Yeah. Right. And Freddie Mercury, if you look at his face, he had kind of a nice broad front of his face with a lot of space in there. And he was an opera lover. So I don't know that he I don't are you aware of did he train? I know he listened to opera. So if you're somebody who came up listening and emulating those sounds, you're setting yourself up to cross those distances vocally. I know he recorded an opera album. Oh, um, did he? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if he was classically trained. I don't believe he was. I think he just, I mean, he's one of those rare, but he seems like he understood 
his power. Uh, you know, I, I I don't know if this is true. Yeah. Like watching him live, he knew. I'm watching those micro adjustments that he makes live. Mm-hmm. Way he way he distances himself from a mic. The way he changes, the, the, you know, the shape of his mouth, like you were just doing. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that he was. He might be one of those guys that um, you know those musicians who can't read music but can play it perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know, those like mm-hmm. those crazy gifted people. He might have been one of those guys who maybe he didn't know the name for what he was doing, but he sure seemed like he knew what he was doing. Well, and you know it's so interesting um, because the. If you, how do I say this? Um, your unconscious brain is so much faster than your conscious mind. So, so you know, um, I haven't read this book yet. But it's been on my list forever. Um, the Inner Game of Tennis. It's an absolute classic. And it's- right. And don't they discuss that when you're thinking about biomechanics and where your elbow should go and where your wrist should go, you're already late. And That's if right. you're thinking about where you want the ball to go, your brain is doing these lightning fast calculations to execute and make it happen. And so maybe maybe somebody like Freddie Mercury wouldn't be able to sit down and you know list out the principles of voice production and tell you why he was doing it, but Perhaps what he did do is listen to albums and sing at the top of his lungs and enjoy the hell out of what he was doing and what he was hearing on his on the records he was listening to and he figured out how to how to do these things. And that's learning, you know, that's one of the things that we studied um, about the cognitive science piece of all this, which is I talk about like uh, procedural learning versus declarative learning. Declarative learning is like um, somebody tells you about it, you know, you um, it's something that's ex- sort of expressed theoretically. Procedural learning is where you actually do the thing. And that's when your act- learning is actually taking place. When you can repeat the thing as opposed to you show me how to do something. I do it for you. You leave. I don't know what we just did. Mm-hmm. I did, could do it when you told me to, but I couldn't do it on my own. But having experiences and exploring, especially for singers, and I, I don't—I think I did this when I was a kid, and it's kind of what put me on my particular path. I don't think I understood how much I had figured out with without knowing that I had figured it out, right? And so when I'm when when I first was studying classical music, I was trying to do what everybody told me, but I wasn't really connecting to my own sensations and my own proprioception of like what is occurring here and what it what am i doing actually i was just doing what my teacher was telling me to do thinking that well this is classical music i shouldn't do anything like what i did before but when i finished grad school i still had a lot of questions about my technique i'm like well how do i figure this out and so i've just been on this quest to like personalize these studies and uh I've kind of kicked some doors open that I couldn't get through in the last several months. And it's pretty exciting, but it has to do with exploration. Mm. Con- like look, looking for sensations and not judging or editing those experiences as you're having them. Like, what does it feel like if I go, hmm, like, you know, if I go, hmm, hmm, like a whimper of a, a little a puppy or something. Well, those are my cords coming together hmm, hmm, in the most gentle way 
those are my vocal cords coming together and separating. And in that way, I started to become aware of like, instead of just demanding that my voice perform things and try to do something that somebody asked me to do, I sort of found my way back towards like, what is happening in my body? What does it mean to me when somebody tells me this or when somebody tells me that, or when I hear this, how do I make that sound? I'm really kind of on one about this. I hope it's not a, a little too much information. <laughs> no, I think it's fascinating. And I, it also makes me wonder how you take in art, how you take like if a Taylor Swift song is on, I'm going to say the radio. I don't know if there is a radio anymore, yeah. but if you hear a Taylor Swift song or if you hear, it doesn't matter by who, if your brain, can you still be a fan or does your brain automatically go to a technical? Oh, no. No, I mean, sometimes, no, I, I don't, I don't think about these things when I'm listening to other people's mm. music. It's purely like a weirdo science art project of my own. But then you go and you, you t listen to classical singers, you really listen to what they say. And you're like, Oh, this is the deal. This is, this is finding the ins and outs of your own particular system, because everybody's Larynx is different and works in different ways and we respond to different things in different ways. But no, I, uh, if anything, I feel like I hear music more clearly. Like I went to the opera with my friend who's the conductor of opera. And I said, I just feel like I'm hearing the parts better than I did before. And she said, yeah, as your musicianship improves, you are, you can track with the things that are occurring. Oh, I see. So the theory there is that your awareness is augmented. I suppose so. Maybe it's just an energy. Maybe it's a maybe it's a desire. I I just felt it occur. I don't quite understand it. There was somebody that said, um, was it Virginia Woolf? I think said, as pertains to art, if you enjoy it, that you understand it. You know, that sounds fair to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one thing that's cool about getting older is that you can just trust how you feel about things and you don't need to know why all the time. That's very true. The other cool thing about getting older and maybe, maybe it's just two things, um, is it feels to me like it's easier to say no. Is it, is it easier for you to say no now? Yeah. And I've also heard people say recently, no is a complete sentence. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of a revelation to me because I always feel like I need to give many reasons. But yeah, I find myself being able to say, I don't, yeah, I don't think that's going to work for me. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be weird. It can just be like, that's the truth of it. Well, when I was younger, instead of saying no, I would say yes to things I didn't want to do. And if I didn't want to do them, then instead of no, I would just provide these elaborate reasons why I, why I wasn't going to do the thing. And as I got older, I found that, you know, just saying no, or I don't think so, or nah, not today, or I'm not interested, um, is much cleaner and it feels better and it makes life so much easier. Did you feel like you needed a compulsion to, sorry, did you feel like you needed to say yes, or that it just wasn't, that you were letting somebody down if you said no? Like totally. to please people. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. You? Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. But then you're letting yourself down. 
So it's like the experience is going to be terrible anyway. Yeah. And you're, you are not honest in that situation. And so even if you're making the best of it, it's not where you're necessarily supposed to be. Right. Right. And then you find yourself in situations that you didn't really want to be in, in the first place. And then it, it's, it's unpleasant for everybody. So, yeah. you know. so let's not do that. Let's not do that. I yeah. love no. It feels so good coming out of my mouth. And in the old days, I couldn't even find, I couldn't find the letters. It was just like, sure, I'll go skiing with you in Montana or whatever. It's like, oh, well, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's you also, the, oh, sorry, go oh, ahead. No, please, please. I was just going to say, there's also the thing of learning to trust yourself. And which is related, right? Like, I don't even need to know why it's no. It just, just doesn't feel right. And I'm going to go with that, you know, in my mind. It can be a private conversation. Like, I don't know. Like, I I also think that just based on my, where I came from and the experiences that I had when I was much, you know, when I was a, a kid, there was a, there's a quality of not, it I guess it being dangerous to make a mistake, you know? And so then you're just constantly trying to not make a mistake. And then if you're not make, if you're, what you're thinking about is not making a mistake, you're not really in the seat of your creativity or your instinct, you know, or your really your, yourself and your soul, you know? So that, that's took me so long to just figure out like, if I, this doesn't feel right, I don't need to do it just because I said I would, I can, I can find a way to find the thing that does feel right. And that took me a very, very, very long time to figure out. It's amazing how long it took me to, like, when I think about it now, I go, geez, I mean, you know, it still feels <laughs> new to me, put it that way. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, me too. Right? Yeah. We, yeah. you know, you and I both grew up in a time where we understand the sort of the tribal element of the social, the social cliques in high school. Mm -hmm. These are the jocks. These are the stoners. These are the mods. These are the whatever. Um, the Breakfast Club makes perfect sense as a visual representation of of groups. Mm -hmm. Where were you? Did you feel that you fit in? Did you feel that you? I was a band nerd. I was just, you know, I played the saxophone and. I was just always doing band stuff and I'd miss all the like cool things that happened on the weekends because I would do some band things. Yeah, I was kind of friends with everybody, but I kind of didn't really know how to act either. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to be friends, you know, I wanted people to, you know, like me, but I wasn't really ever very comfortable other than when I was with my band people. Yeah, I was kind of kind of secretly awkward actually but just trying to be cool <laughs> you know it's also nice not to be worried about that anymore either yeah yeah good god how yeah. important are your musical friends I, I was talking to paula cole about this i remember i asked her about this like how how important are your friends that are artists that can relate to the artistic experience the idea of growth that you're working on the stuff that you're that you're at work on in the lab so to speak um how important are those friendships to you right now i mean just in your in in your daily life 
Um, well, my bestie, Lucy Woodward, we have powwows regularly. Do you know Lucy? I know the name. Oh, you should. She's, she's fantastic. She's a great singer, writer. She lives in Europe now, but she, um, she's around just, you'll, you'll be really excited when you come across what she's up to. She's just putting a new album out right now. And I we have, have a group together. What? I have to contact her. Yeah, definitely. You definitely do. We have a group called the goods. We're like slutty Andrew sisters. <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds like fun. Yeah. We have a Christmas EP that's on, um, Spotify and all the places. And we have another EP. It's just called the goods EP. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of discussions about all this stuff and her mom was an opera singer. And so she grew up in that her dad's a conductor and composer. And so we have a lot of discussions about everything from she toured with Rod Stewart. I toured with David Bowie. Like we have had a lot of similar experiences. So we're constantly checking in with one another about this or that. Um, and then just, I have a group of friends here who, um, like my friends who play at the write-off room, you know, anytime they're playing, I'm super psyched to be asked to go and, and hang out or just to go and hang out and, and sing. Um, and yeah, you know, my, my super duper duper music homies are in New York. So whenever I go to New York, I see them like Robin McIntyre, um, or Chris Bruce, or friends that um, I've known for a really long time that we've have all this history together. And I do have a lot of music friends in LA also. Um, and I don't, I guess because of our life with, with Mace, like I'm not out all the time going to do things, but if there is something cool, a lot of times I'm by myself and I just show up to see my people play. Actually, when I went to sing with Dylan O'Brien and the, the gang at the Red Off Room, Jay Belrose was there. And I hadn't seen him in a while. It was so nice to see him. And uh, yeah, that was, that was so nice. So yeah, um, those relationships are really important to me. There's so much history but as I said, I don't get to see everybody as much as I would like to. You mentioned you're thinking about a new album. And I'm wondering, like, as it's germinating, what comes first? Does music come first? Do lyrics start to kind of float in? What's the process on that? Um, it can be both, but I like to do, and I've been doing a, a fair amount of it over the last year or so, like automatic writing, where I just sit down and put a timer and don't edit. Just start, just start typing and, and just go and give myself prompts and just do that. So I have a kind of a stack of lyrics. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how it's gonna, I don't know how it's gonna go, but I, I really do feel free now in a way that I haven't in a long time, maybe since I was a kid. So Sometimes I hear a thing and I put it on my voice memo and then I go back and I find the thing and I find some words and yeah. I haven't done a ton, ton, ton of writing on my own. Usually I spent, when I, once I got signed, I started doing a lot of co-writing with people, mm. but I always like, I always feel like the things that I sat and wrote by myself are some of the things that feel the most um, like a complete statement or a complete little universe unto itself. So 
that may be what's coming up. More of that. I'm getting my piano tune next week, which is exciting. I see it in the background. Is that what yeah. There it is. Yeah. Oh, you see it in the in the mirror. Yeah. Oh, it's a mirror. Yeah. yeah. So that's exciting. Yeah, because because this was under construction, and then we came in, and I was traveling, and so now I'm back. So. How many instruments do you play? I play very bad piano and very bad guitar. <laughs> like songwritery, like I can play the chords and find the sounds, but I'd much rather have somebody else do it. You were mentioning on Instagram that your son is really into hip hop. Um, has that made its way to your ears as well? Well, yeah, because his favorite thing is music, like more than anything. When his body used to get really tight, which is common with people that have a brain injury, right? Your body gets super tight and he would just get into like a little coil, like a little wire coil. And he'd be like laying down on, you know, like infants, they have those sort of play mats with like things over them and they can, you know, so he had one of those and we'd lay him on there and we'd hope that like he would engage with the things above his head, but he, well, he didn't really, cause he couldn't really move his arms functionally. And so we would, but then we put the music on and as soon as like the first time we noticed it, it was human nature by Michael Jackson. He, he was like, his face was all scrunched up and he was just like in, in pain. And then we put it on and all of a sudden his whole body just melted and his eyes opened so wide. As soon as that little synth line da -da 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 in human nature. Yeah. So anyway, so we'd, when he would get really, um, really tight we he'd lay down and we'd hold on to his little feet and we'd roll like one foot over the other and roll his knee to the opposite side and then roll him back and forth and to the music that was the thing that would just calm him calm him down so that was like not the question that you asked me but, oh you asked me about me listening to him that's, yeah, a, my, cool, that's a really cool anecdote I, I love hearing that that's a, what a beautiful story oh yeah, he's he's told us a lot of stories, a lot of stories about uh, perseverance and uh, composure and courage, and uh, he's very funny. Um, and when he doesn't like a song, he's very, very uh, vocal about it. Although he's chilled out on that. He actually just used to get so pissed if he didn't like the song. And now he, you can just see him kind of giving side eye like, yeah, not not into it. <laughs> but my husband is a huge music fan. He has a, um, he actually has like a, a record label. Uh, they put out, it's called Dinzu Artifacts and he puts out music on cassette and vinyl. And it's sort of like limited runs, like 300 copies and they always sell out because he does all the design. It's a very beautiful, um, it's sort of a whole experience to get his stuff, but it's sort of um, sound as art. It's not songs. It's like, can be tape loops or environmental sounds and stuff like that. But he's a huge music fanatic. Everything from like Phila Kuti to hip hop to Leonard Cohen to just so many different things. And so our house has always been full of music. Um, but then to see what Maceo's into, yeah, he likes like Run the Jewels and, you know, Far Side and all kinds of cool stuff. Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang for sure. Wu-Tang for sure. Yeah. I think that's really cool. It's You never know what's going to hit people. You just have no idea what's going to land and what's going to resonate and why. So it, yeah. it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's It's pretty fun.
I got your debut album back in 1996 and just fell in love with it. And I've followed your career. I love everything you do. And I'm super excited to hear new Holly Palmer music. Yeah. And uh, I'm excited for you to hear it too. I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. I don't know. I hope that I, I hope that I, I'm, I hope that I can make something um, in less time than it took me to make all the last things. It seemed to take a long time to make things. So I'd like to, kind of get into enjoying making some new things sooner than later because I'm realizing that I would like to do some shows. I don't know. It just sounds interesting and fun again. Get back on the stage. Yeah. Yeah. And the stage as a, as an environment within which to create something that's, that's not polished or necessarily definitely not perfect, but as a, I like making things on stage. I like improvising. I like having the right musicians around me that we make each other feel things and do things musically. That, That I'm getting excited about again. And there is a discovery process on stage, right? I mean, that's such an organic moment where something dynamic or kinetic or unexpected can happen. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it would be cool to write some music that has some some forethought for that you know some some little platforms to jump from or you know um so we'll see we'll see but i did sing a song in a film that's coming out um oh. i actually don't know when it's coming out i don't know if it has distribution quite yet but it's called babes and it's pamela adlon's directorial debut and the song that i sing in it is um and the world goes round. Eliza Minnelli sang it in New York, New York, I think. That might come out in the, the the following year. I I think they're doing screenings now. I don't know that it has distribution, so I, we can all we can all just keep our keep our eyes out for it. I'm not sure when it's gonna appear. Holly Palmer, she's great. We'll bring her back. She's so fun to talk to, so smart, so cool, and so ridiculously talented. I just love her. She's the best. HollyPalmerLife.com is Holly's website. Check it out. Go there. Buy the music. All the music's amazing. Get everything. And buy some merch while you're there. There's a uh, t-shirt with a sailboat on it. I think you look adorable in that. Pick one up for you and maybe for somebody else. Maybe you know, someone you love or someone who doesn't know that you love them. Say, here, here's a Holly Palmer t-shirt with a sailboat on it. And they'll be like, you're very thoughtful. What's your name? (laughs) You can give strangers t-shirts. Why not? Anyway, it's a cool shirt. Holly's website's awesome. Follow her on Instagram. She's a great follow. She's just the coolest. So get Holly Palmer into your life. You can get me into your life on social media. Follow me on what's left of Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. 
bombshellradio.com is the place you need to go to find out what makes our radio station tick. And not that it would ever slip your mind, but don't forget that Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Family by Holly Palmer. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio. Pardon me for stating the obvious, just want to get on the same page it's plain to see i'm a little bit different i'm not like you and you're not like me